The Octarine Dream, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Lyra John. G'day, mob. Fuck. Welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. Today, we are bedazzled by the High Priest of Rune Soup, Gordon White. Many of you will probably be familiar with Gordon and Rune Soup because, as I state in the interview, and I mean it, Rune Soup is one of, if not the best things on the internet right now. Rune Soup is a, it's a blog about magic and a podcast about magic. It's also a thriving member community of people right across the world interested in doing magic, the intellectual and performative understanding of magic and the improvement of our lives by using magic. He's also president of Permaculture Tasmania and um, a really bloody nice guy. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this talk with Gordon because he's one of those people who, he's actually kind of like a little bit intimidatingly well-read and clever. And I'll listen to Gordon speak and he'll casually drop references to not just works but entire kind of threads uh, schools of thought that I haven't heard of and I have to kind of pause, take note and go back and reference them later. And he drops it like it ain't no thing. But he's also a very, very humble, very human, very approachable chap. Also, this is the first, I think this is episode 16. I have not mentioned this so far, but I have a Patreon account and a PayPal account as well, I believe. I should probably double check that. Definitely have a Patreon account associated with the Octorine Tree podcast, which I love doing very much, and which also takes approximately one work day a week for me to do. So an eight hour day times what I usually charge. I'm not gonna even tell you what that is, but it adds up. So if you do, gain anything from these podcasts and you are inclined to do so it would genuinely mean a lot to me if you could assist in any way i know you've probably heard that come at you through your ear pods in various ways throughout your years in internet land god knows i have but it's fucking true when you're on this end the production end of something like this a lot of work goes into it yeah, it's a labour of love, that's legit, but any little assistance does go a long way and it also just helps me and those like me doing these things know that there is in fact an audience. There are people out there enjoying it and listening. So enough of my pining falsetto and without further ado, Gordon White. Gordon White, welcome to the Octorine Tree Podcast. How are you, mate? I'm very good. I'm very good. How are you? I'm good, thank you, mate. You're in uh, Tasmania as we speak? Yes, indeed. Yep. Whereabouts in Tassie? I've been to Tassie before, but I haven't had a really thorough look around. Whereabouts in Tassie are you? So uh, I'm in the Huon Valley, which is, uh, so I'm about 50 minutes drive south of Hobart. So we're in the southeast. Right. You're right uh, down there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Australia's southernmost municipality. Right, okay. You are not from Tassie, correct? No, no, no. I'm from Newcastle, New South Wales, uh, born and raised, uh, University of Sydney. Oh, you're from Newey. Oh, yeah, Newey boy. And then uh, my my dad's side's actually from Perth. So growing up, I would spend my Easter holidays in uh, in Cottesloe and Dalkeith because they were a bit fancy. Really? Yeah, 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 dude, I'm in Dalkeith. No way, nice one. Yeah, I, I grew up, like, I don't like to tell everyone, but I grew up smack bang in the leafy green western suburbs of Perth. There you go. There you go. Without giving too much information away, is that the white side of the family? Because everyone yep. in this area knows one another, so there is actually a good chance I know members of your family. Very likely, very likely. Um, and it's on that side, it was an unusual agricultural family going back a few generations. So my, my grandfather's grandfather, if I got that right, mm. uh, invented a new way of irrigating wheat that allowed for 
the sort of um, colonization to continue in the northern part of the state. So there's a sort of uh, agricultural lineage uh, on that side. But, right. Um, okay. There you go. Right. Okay. Now, forgive me. I don't want to um, steal your shtick. And I have this, I should let you know, I was a member of RuneSoup for a while. And then when COVID hit and kicked me in the money balls, I pulled out temporarily. But I, <laughs> I do plan to rejoin. Um, so, yeah, I am familiar with what you do and your work and whatnot. Well, I could kind of tell from the octarine, right? Uh, that's, a very, that's a very specific, very specific yeah. term yeah. In, in Magic Land. Yeah, I was playing with that for quite a long time ago. That was a song I wrote. The Octarine Tree is a song that I wrote that came out of a little like self-made nursery rhyme that I used to sing my kids about would go to find the nectarine tree that was in the laneway in our suburb and it just evolved into uh, Octarine. But yeah, I've been playing with magic for some time and I came across Rune Soup. I have a dear friend, shout out to Bob Nekrasov, he was insisting that I get onto Rune Suit for years and years. And it was one of those things. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll get there, I'll get there. And eventually <laughs> I found it. And I was like, so proud of myself for finding this thing all by myself. And uh, I actually think Rune Soup is probably the best thing on the internet at the moment. It's fucking amazing. Oh. Well, thank you. I, it's, it's a lot of work. So did you come to Octarine before we continue? Did you come mm. to Octarine directly via Pratchett or Pratchett via Pete Carroll? Carol. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I stink of it. Um, <laughs> I'm familiar with Rune Soup and what you do, but I've not heard a lot of interviews that you've done with others so much, so I'm not an entirely aware of your story, your biography. So, again, to not to steal your shtick, but were you a weird kid? Definitely. Um Part of it was being sort of precocious in the sense of hitting milestones quite early. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's some stuff. And talk about beginners, you mean to continue, like being four years old and sort of propped up at the bar at a hotel in Fiji and because my father's a doctor. And so we're there with visiting doctor family friends and so on. And one of these doctors came up to the bar and I'm like, Malcolm, can I buy you a drink? Because the, um, the Fijians were very impressed at this idea of this small child um, drinking fire engines and just like ordering them. Mm. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I read Lord of the Rings independently at the age of six. Now, right. I didn't, which is to say I finished the book. I sat there and read through it. And I've obviously read it dozens of times since. So I um, have no memory of the world without Middle Earth. It kind of emerges from the, that sort of edge of gloom of childhood memory. Yeah. And, I, and, and different parts of it come into an awareness and consciousness. So there's, there's a sort of precocious milestone hitting, um, mm. which allowed me, I think, to be a bit aware of uh, other weird kid stuff that happened. So I had your kind of classic hag attack, um, sleep paralysis experiences and things that may or may not have been screen memories of a sort of cla classic UFO account. Um, Cause I can remember being a, a repeated nightmare where I would be immobilized and it would feel like I would shrink and be, and so the weave of the fitted sheet would become as thick as ship ropes. Mm. And that would kind of trap me. And I'd have these visions of like, really large knitting needles because they were so small and then like a Romulan warbird was sort of floating around mm -hmm. and so it's this childlike I attempt I think if you look at that from a motif perspective you've got in uh, immobility and um, needles and, and a child's understanding of you know what is this sort of spaceship yeah. stuff and so I had these recurring really potent um, immobilizing nightmares mm -hmm. and, and similar ones with the classic hag attack experience so there's stuff like that that went on. Um, in that sense, I was weird. Uh, I found magic at 13. And again, it's another dream experience that I should probably get. Uh, I should probably do some hypnosis and, and find what it was. But like one, one Saturday morning at the age of 13, I kind of sat bolt upright and was sort of aware that I'd had an odd, something had happened in dream. And I walked down the hill, this is when I was in Newcastle, I walked down the hill from Merriweather Heights into the junction, which is about a five, six kilometer walk mm. to what used to exist back in the day, which was very good independent bookstores. And this one is called Book Hog. And I walked in and with the money I'd made from refereeing soccer and um, bought a bunch of like Llewellyn, Wicker and Druidry books and mm. a packet of cigarettes because I was 13. And I sat in the grandstand 
of Townsendover where I played rugby and smoked cigarettes and read these books and and it was off to the races after that but that right. that Saturday morning story began in dream and I don't know what the dream is do you continue to experience sleep paralysis no okay because it's something I had a lot as a kid right that whole like sleep paralysis and the whole like suite of phenomena and uh, that come along with it like a really strong sense that there is there is at least an another entity in the room or in the space like undeniable sense strong sense and totally. the buzzing sounds and the flashing lights and for me a sense of foreboding and I still experience them I had one the other day and it was the first time someone has woken me up I was lying next to my partner and I've had it in the past where oh, I know I'm in it because yeah. I still get them in adulthood. I, I, I can be quite lucid in them and I'm aware that I'm in this space and it's a, it's a disturbing feeling. And there have been times where I've been like, no, maybe, maybe you just need to get through this boundary of fear, this membrane of fear, and let's see what's on the other side. But I always black out from consciousness once I yeah. do that. I don't know what's on the other side once I relax through it. So and the instinct is always to like push away. There's this kind of animal instinct. So weird. This is so strange. This is so foreboding. I want out. This is menacing. And in the past, I've tried to like make noise so my partner will wake me up. And I've never done it before until the other night. So I got to experience me doing that, like pulling all of my energy and strength together to just like try to scream her name. And of course, like yeah. all she heard was like, Mm -hmm. yep. but she actually pulled me out of it and it was so that was the first time that I've actually been able to experience being pulled out of this weird hypnagogic state by the stimulus of someone outside of it so it, it is yeah. funny it, it's a strange thing so but what sort of what's because it stopped once I found magic and I started warding myself and my house Right. Uh, because it is a being. It's funny, the, the buzzing thing you mentioned, one of the screen memories, like I didn't want to say this because it just seemed too 80s, right. but the, the He-Man character, Buzz Off, um, would also right. show up. Which one was he? He was the bee. He was the kind of like bee oh, man yeah, one. Yeah. I had the figure of him. Yeah, same, but it was um, the rubber head came off. Yeah. Terrible, terrible action figure. It had cool wings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's funny you mentioned that because my experiences of when it would happen as a child, would be you would sort of stir and and this being would be in the corner of the room like a hag mm. and and it would be waiting in the corner of the room until you became fully cognizant that this was about to happen mm. um, so it waited for you to know because it had it fed it feeds off your fear mm. so it has to know that you are aware of it or else you're just not lunch uh, and then it will come up really really close and you're in that kind of situation of absolute terror and not being able to move or and, and refusing to open your eyes mm. but it waits for you to be aware that it's in the room for it to happen and I, I one time I had an attack up here visiting friends in Maruchidor this would have been late 80s uh, and so it, does, it wasn't bound uh, confined to my house and my little brother we we're all sharing the room the kids bunks and whatever and I again kind of that try to get people's attention to wake me up screaming yeah. this loud yeah uh, and he'd, he'd just come back from the bathroom or something so i managed to get him to get my mother to like shake me out of it but that was the one time if you like i think and i met a friend well i met a friend of a friend actually greg carlwood's wedding he had a friend who's obviously adult who has had persistent hag attack sleep paralysis experiences mm. too and they're easy to buy these things in texas but if you go to a botanica and get some sort of a fairly basic house protection kit, mm. see what happens okay. because it is um, you, like house protection is, in fact, one of the easiest forms of magic. We kind of intuitively know how to do it because mm. humans dwell and make habitat. And that's one of the fun overlaps, I think, between something like magic and permaculture. Yeah, okay, I'll look into that. This this last attack, funnily enough, it wasn't in my house. It was like a little motel yeah. motel thingy. And it, you're right, there is something about them or it, the phenomena, it, they, knowing that you're aware of them. Because another thing that I used to have was there would be the buzzing and the flashing lights and whatnot, but I would have this, <laughs> it's so poltergeist now I'm thinking about it, but uh, uh, they're here thought that would go through my head like oh they're here, they're here. 
and then yep. bam, I'd be into it. Not to stretch the point out too much, but there was a time I was in Morocco and I had the most intense like nighttime hypnagogic somniferous experience that I won't bore you or the listeners with. But the next night I was really kind of concerned about what would happen and this thing came at me from the back and was snarling and kind of actually I could feel myself physically moving but I remember kind of just like for whatever reason laughing at it and chuckling at it and telling it I loved it and it just flitted off kind of disappointed nice funny experiences okay so Fiji you spent a fair bit of time back and forth from Fiji as a kid it wasn't just a one-off oh yeah 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 so my my Speaking of the the Perth side of the family, my grandfather, there goes my neighbor in a tractor, uh, my grandfather um, was part of colonial administrations. And my dad's dad ran parts of Nauru and New Guinea as a career. Uh, So my aunt is actually New Guinean. She lives in Perth. Dad grew up there. So, and in Nauru, and in fact, at the university with the intention of uh, he back to New Guinea doing that, but he found his first wife at university, and, and, and that is history. Um, so he grew up in an island context, and that mm. meant that he couldn't go a year, not in a creepy way, but like home for him is Melanesia and Polynesia. That's what right. it feels like and smells like and sounds like. Mm. Uh, and my mother likes warm temperatures. So uh, it was kind of interesting in the 80s because Fiji kept having coups that... Uh, I remember once, and this is such a childish thing, right? I remember complaining to my parents, why are we going to Fiji again? Everyone else is going to the Gold Coast um, from Newcastle. Mm. And mum explained, like, because it's cheaper. It is literally cheaper for a family of five to go to Fiji than it is to the Gold Coast, and I don't know what's wrong with them. They're, like, worried about a little coup or something. And that was actually true. So with with the exchange rate and and the rest of it, it was cheaper for Newcastle to go to Fiji with a family of five so consequently uh that's my childhood holiday place we would go diving and and uh all over the pacific um solomon's um yeah where where else where haven't we and but but fiji in particular looks and smells like the afterlife to me i had some very strange spirit experiences there growing up too when you were 13 that's when you said you bought magical books is that when you went to the bookstore is that what you said yeah. So okay. yeah, that's when I decided that I was gonna be, I was gonna be about this. Okay. So at somewhere around that stage beforehand, you were conscious, explicit that this was going to be an endeavor. You were going to explore magic. I just woke up one day and I did magic. Like you, as in right. that was my that was my the home my my home was magic. It was weird, um, and and it, that hasn't gone away. <laughs> okay. It might, it's a very long phase if it's a phase. <laughs> and did you kind of tiptoe through? the new age and kind of fluffier introductory aspects what did you land on what did you land with chaos magic fairly quickly so i read i just at first i thought it was because I, I read some wicker books and i'm like this is nonsense no offense to wiccans um, and so i'm like well maybe it's druidry and that wasn't it but again this is sort of like reading two or three books sort of looking for an identity and then i read pete Carroll's books and i'm like this is it Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I've been looking for. Um, so I sort of, and then read, because they, they were very easy to buy, even at Angus Robertson in the early 90s, like um, the Satanic Bible and the Satanic Rituals. Yeah. I'm like, maybe I'm going to do this. So me and some mm-hmm. sort of goth friends in high school decided we were going to be a Satanic coven for a hot minute. Um, that that definitely was a phase. Yeah. I can still remember my father, his horror when he saw me reading the Satanic Bible at the age of 15. He couldn't, he couldn't believe it. Poor bastard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I lent a copy to my friend whose mother burnt it. Like, um, she, he found it, she found it in his stuff and burnt it and was terrified. And I, I, that was my first realisation. Because you just think you're cool when you're a kid. Like, mm. oh, look at me, I'm edgy. Yeah. That's my first realisation. that Actually, people are scared of this. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, phase. So it was chaos yeah. magic. Yeah. Chaos magic. It was a real 90s mood, I guess. Uh, Mm. X-Files was on TV, um, Invisible's comics, Pete mm. Carroll's books, which admit it, it must be said by then we're getting on for almost 10 years old. Uh, yeah. And then some of them were 10 years old. So I've met Pete a few times. And it's not that he disavows his original books, but he does go to trouble to point out that they are now almost 50 years old. Right. Yeah. So there's his, his thinking has moved on um, quite a bit um, since then. But that was that was it for me. It was a framework that worked really well moving into university, doing film, because uh, Chaos Magic in my hands in the 90s was almost like a, um, 
a lived postmodernism slash postcolonialism. It allowed me to approach texts in, mm. I would say, a better way than we were doing at university, even though they were doing postmodernism and, and what have you. So it was just a really useful part, a really useful way of playing with identity, mm. which is which is what adolescence is. So, mm. um, and it just kind of stuck the the, the mouthfeel of of chaos magic, uh, and and its and its invitation to experiment was really interesting to me. Yeah, that, uh, the latter, its invitation to experiment, it kind of gave me a sense of permission is probably not the right word, but yeah, a permission to experiment. There is no way and just go out and explore. There's something about having found something like that in formative years that just fosters an elasticity of mind Yes, that I'm really glad personally that I had discovered early on that I, I didn't practice with a capital P for a very long time. And to be honest, I, I, I need a good kick in the bum regarding my practice. But uh, yeah, having having discovered those things in formative years and just as opposed to maybe coming across it in mid-20s or 30s, uh, there's huge difference, I think. Where did you meet Pete? In Bristol. Um, so that's, oh, yeah. where, um, that's where he lives and works. And, and when we moved to London in 2008, was the worst time in the history of money to move to London. It was easier to get a job during the Blitz in London than when I was there. There were a few moments because it was just as Lehman Brothers had collapsed and so on. Mm. Um, and so I'd be in in the HR department of these large kind of like networks um, mm. talking about what I could do for their ad sales team or whatever. And unbeknownst to me that night, their um, CFO had called up the Chancellor of the Exchequer and said, like, if you don't fix this, I can't pay my workforce of 100,000 people. <laughs> right. Like, right, right. Um, not a good time. Anyway, consequently, we ran out of the money we saved. And I found a job with the BBC on Gumtree uh, by accident. It was in Bristol. because That's where... Uh, um, BBC magazines was so we'd sort of we'd run out of money and I'd gone to visit some friends in Bristol and I got this job with BBC Max and that was our savior so we moved out of and this is the strange thing so Pete's business I didn't know any of this stuff before I moved mm. there mm. shares a lane with the apartment we were in so our yeah. room soup started when uh, we'd just been through this traumatic experience of three months of job hunting and losing all our money and everything mm. in London and then we sort of arrived with our last dollar in in Bristol and uh and I the apartment that we'd picked shared a laneway because uh, it was in the middle of town with the business that Pete runs. I'm not sure if he still does, but because um, he's getting on for a time and age. Right. But because uh, uh, I remember thinking like, oh, this is sort of the home base in a funny way of Chaos Magic, although it actually mm. did begin more or less in Stoke Newington in, in North London. Mm. Uh, so I met Pete a couple of times there and at his book launch and some Glastonbury events and right. things. You just, after a while, you fall into the, That's, um, um, you know, the UK magic scene. Yeah. I actually, I lived in Bristol for a while. Um, oh, nice. Whereabouts? Yeah, Corn Street. Ah, right in Bristol. Yeah, I, I must say, it creeped me out. I got out of Bristol pretty quick. <laughs> I was there for about a month, and it was actually the first time in my adult life I can remember this gross acceleration of psychic phenomena and just, you know, good old-fashioned synchronicity, and it, the ship was just turned up to 11. Yeah. The minute I landed in Bristol and this bizarre theme of vampires that was coming up around me but just like utterly undeniable synchronicity regarding vampirism uh, but like actual vampire like i want to suck your blood dracula kind of motif vampire yeah it was an incredibly rich time there like i remember seeing just walking into a club and it was dj shadow and tom york doing a, a little secret <laughs> gig it was just one of these places where incredible shit happened terrifying and wonderful yeah, that sounds about right. It is. Uh, Bristol has more ghosts than people think, right? Because actually a lot of the slave money, a yeah. lot of the slave money built Clifton. So it is quite vampiric and it's a very difficult, you you have to go through things to learn to love it. And I actually, because I was only there for about three months and mm. I couldn't tell if I didn't like the place or if I was just so, and it was a bit of both utterly completely destroyed and traumatized and depressed from what had just happened in London. Um, so I couldn't tell. And mm. I wasn't really enjoying the BBC mags job and then Discovery Channel called me from London because I'd gotten down to the last final two or three in a job interview round for them. And the other two pulled out. So that's how I ended up back in London after only three months in Bristol. Mm. But I know exactly mm. what you mean because it's, uh, 
there is something beautiful and and actually terrifying about it. It's got pirates and and slave ghosts and, and all this kind of cool stuff. But we're in Old Market, so only a, right. only a, a walk through the park from you, yeah. and that was. Um, that's Old Templar land. That's where the the, the name like so we're um, Old Temple Roundabout. Mm. So it had like Bristol has all these weird layers of slavery and Templars and and mm. pirates and lo- but also not just slavery. The beginning of the abolitionist movement at the Seven Stars Pub, which was one of our locals, and uh. all the kind of stuff. Um, all that stuff is is really present in Bristol, and you kind of have to be an historian to to live there <laughs> without yeah. going crazy. It's rich. I mean, for those who are listening as well, there's suburbs and roads in Bristol are named after the camps where they would segregate the slaves into like white boys and black women. And yeah, it, it's a pretty, it, yeah. it, it's certainly got a, a strong mojo down there. So what took you home from the UK back to Australia? A lot of stuff, magic mostly. Like it was another dream experience, but I woke up one day in our... Um, in our West London share house and sort of turn to my partner and say, I think we end up on a permaculture farm in Southern Tasmania. And, uh, and that turned out to be right. <laughs> so now we have a permaculture farm in, in Southern Tasmania that looks exactly like that evening in the front room of our Chiswick house. We sat down and I'm like, well, what do you want? Because we did look everywhere. We, the dream told me where we would be, mm. but we still approached it with the rationality of, because I love the Welsh borders and all these places. So mm. we looked at, Places still in the UK, and then coming back to Australia, we looked at it had to be a river because we wanted that. So we looked at like Bellingen and the mm. Huon and the mm. Tamar and all these, but all these great places, right? Uh, and it, it drove the, my way of thinking kind of drove dad nuts. He's like, Well, what are you going to grow? And I'm like, Well, it depends where we are. And it's like, if we'll do avocados in, in like Bellingen, but mm. we won't do them in the Huon. And he's like, But what do you want to grow? And I'm like, It depends where we yeah. are. So it's that kind of he thinks we came back to be farmers. And I'm like, that's not it. It's, it's, it's about that the thing that permaculture isn't good at, which is speaking the language of a living cosmos. I'm like, where can I be in relation with, with specific beings yeah. uh, in, in, uh, the, along whose journey I can participate or co-participate? Yeah. Um, so that's how it was. I mean, I was definitely a lot better at magic then than I was uh, when I went. Um, so that was it. Was, it was an odd realization which is one of the th- things you should pay attention to um jung understood this right that mm-hmm. you should turn a friendly face to the unconscious yeah. so if you get messages and dreams and you ignore them mm. they'll stop talking to you yes but I if know. you listen yeah. to them they'll talk to you more and and so i listened and and everything i wanted a 19th century house because i'm i don't know gay and james wanted to be <laughs> on a river um, and we needed high-speed internet access for my job, and we didn't want to be in a town, but we wanted walking distance from town and all this kind of stuff. And for mm. our price point, mm. being able to... Oh, and obviously we want Airbnb, so we wanted room to build something. And we got all of that. We're on a, um, we're on a river we can drink from. Uh, the front half of the house is from 1885. There already is a separate guest house, all within our, our price point, high-speed internet, and I can walk into the closest town, which is Chiefston. And that's magic for you, right? Like we were doing that um, manifestation. And I didn't know it existed, right? Um, yeah. But if you, that's your kind of dialogue with the future self or, or unconscious. Mm. So that's how we came back. It was We were summoned for better or for worse. Okay. And is this where you are now? Is this the first time you've had extended put down roots relationship yep. with a patch of dirt and all that comes with it? Well, not extended relationship, but an ownership custodianship relationship. Right. So okay. this was the first time we've scaled up from keen gardening to permaculture. So we've, it's only five acres, but five acres is a lot when you're used to a garden. Five acres is actually a really nice snug Size. I think so. I think yeah. that's that Bill Mollison thing, right? Like buy the smallest possible piece of land and, mm. and get it to be as productive as possible. And I, I'm really into that. How does it feel? Because I spent 10 odd years living in the bush in southwestern Australia down Margaret River Way. I was at Zaytuna Farm for a good year and a bit. I was in New Zealand for ages. I've spent a fair bit of time in the bush and in the country. I'm currently in the city. It's funny, like I spent my entire adult life kind of expecting and preparing for the apocalypse. And then when the closest thing to it had arrived, I found myself in the middle of the city having just moved out of the country. That's a whole different story. But yeah, 
how does it feel for you? Like, do you ever long for, would you like to have a portal that would send you back to London or Main Street here or there? Or are you really happy being where you are in the country? It's both, right? So last year, um, because I'm an anarchist and you can't be anti-state and pro-lockdown, um, before last year, I would actually spend, so 2019, I spent a quarter of the year out of the state. And that was, I did events at the Guggenheim. I was on ayahuasca retreats in, in um, Peru, all this kind of stuff. So I, I had an international life. Um, mm, yeah. And now I don't. Mm. So there was a tremendous amount, and it's not coming back for reasons that are, we can talk about privately. But mm. um, so there's a lot of grieving that when I moved down here, I was not informed that I wouldn't be able to leave it. Yeah. Um, so I love it here. And I've nevertheless gone through, um, uh, like I've I've had to process a lot of trauma from the last year about realizing that a life that I worked twenty years for is not going to happen. I was yeah. in London when um, this uh, power grab began, yeah. and sort of had to flee back last helicopter out of Saigon. But I was also going to spend two months. I was finishing a book in Cusco and uh, building water tanks for the Kuntanawa in Brazil, and and all this kind of stuff that was going on that was going to happen last year. Oh, another event at the Guggenheim over the summer. Um, all this stuff that now isn't postponed, never happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You sort of slip out of that timeline. So how it feels is I love it here. I um, I thank whatever you want to call it every day, um, the profound gratitude for for being here in this context in the Huon Valley um, the, the, the mountain beings and forest beings that I'm in relation with are just wonderful. If there was ever, if I was ever to be locked up anywhere, um, this mm. is quite a good one, yeah. right? So it's it's both. Uh, it's <laughs> it, yeah. it's wondrous yeah. being here. Yeah. Uh, this is absolutely where we're meant to be. And funny, you you kind of reversed the apocalypse. We showed up just in time for it to be like, well, actually, this is quite a good, uh, yeah, quite a good bolt hole. It wasn't necessarily why we picked it, although as I kept saying to my family, again, my father who wanted me to like, well, what are you growing? And I'm like, shut up. I'm like, I'm not expecting the collapse of Western civilization, but if it does happen, I'm in a pretty good spot. Um, however, I, I like living there. So it's sort of, it's like scenario planning where um, this is quite a good place to bug out if bug out, if be, if bugging out is required. Um, but if it's not, I live in the Huon Valley in southern Tasmania. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I found myself living in a, a beautiful eco-village in New Zealand at the Permaculture Research Institute of New Zealand for December of 2012. That was my intended, like, forever place bug out, but that never occurred. But you did a great episode. I think it was a solo show on grieving for what you know, potential futures or ideals and ideas that have been yeah. lost due to the uh, quote-unquote pandemic. I found that so healing. That was so, thank you for that. That's really nice to hear. Oh, no, yeah. it was just, it was, was just so fucking great. Was this the recapitulation one at the end of last year? Yeah, yeah. And I, found, I found myself yeah. walking through like the woods in, in a park in Perth just going, oh, fuck yeah, I hadn't even... I hadn't even kind of come to the place where I could articulate that yet because I think I was in a bit of denial still. But it was like, nope, he's fucking right. It's there are things <laughs> that there are things that just aren't going to occur now, and I have to recalibrate what where I'm at and where what I'm casting forth and um, grieve for things I didn't even know I was. You know, all these assumptions came to the surface. So that was really valuable. Thanks for, for doing that. Yeah, thank you for saying so. It's been a really popular episode, which it's funny that, like, because you do shows as well, right? Yeah. You will have one that, it's not that I dashed it off because I'd obviously spent a year processing my own trauma and and being attacked for having what turned out to be correct analyses of the situation and, and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and so I'd, I'd done that. Like, I do magic. Uh, but I, the episode itself took, like, an hour, right? Yeah. Like I said, I'll, I'll make these notes and then I'll, I'll give people the recapitulation exercise. And it's always the ones, and in the meantime, there's ones where I'll read like a hundred thousand word book and and get all these questions together. And, and I love those beautiful, intense episodes. And then mm. they're like middle of the road, but I do this one and it's, you just never know. You just gotta, you've got to share what's in you. And that's not yeah. just podcasting, that's in general. Because if you don't, it's, it's as the Gnostics, the gospel of Thomas tells us like, um, if you don't bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Yeah. Amen. The shows that I've had greatest response to are the ones where I just am most vulnerable. Yeah. 
That's what it is. You know, it's not the most clever questions or greatest insights. It's just like spilling my guts pretty much. I think that gets back to the feel of original podcasting. That's, an, that's a keen insight, right? Because I remember way back in the day before even really mobile phones in the smartphone sense of when it was iPods were, well, podcasts were called that because of iPods. And yeah. I would... I got. A, I would plug an iPod into my computer. This is living in Auckland, and and use iTunes to download like mm-hmm. a BBC podcast or something. And I'd listen to it walking around Ponsonby, and and I couldn't believe that I could hear voices and even like the the saliva ASMR type sounds of someone's voice right in my head as I was walking around. It was so intimate, right? And that was that was the real potency of early podcasting. And as you kind of say, that can be recovered if if you bleed over over the airwaves, if you bleed into your MP3, if you do show that that vulnerability, because that's what people want. They want the human to human connection. They want to know that there is another being um, that's inside their head at that moment. Yeah, I, I've had an, a number of great moments like that where it's just someone, whether it's a podcast or certainly in the flesh, just bringing that vulnerability to the room and uh, this great weight off my shoulders, like, oh fuck, yeah, I'm allowed to be that too. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to feel that and bring that to the surface. There is a, a great sense of permission that comes from it. Mm. So, where did you first discover permaculture? Where were you? Were you in London? <laughs> Well, so this is a funny story. I somehow knew it existed before I did. And so I obviously did high school in New South Wales, which means we had the HSC. Mm-hmm. And and in the lead up, when you're in year 12, the local universities put on, you know, um, local university departments put on evenings sort of explaining what they're about. And I said to my mother, I want to be an environmental engineer. And she mm-hmm. said, why would you want to do that? They just build stormwater drains around business parks. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, they don't. Environmental engineering is like um, planting denuded hillsides with local endemics and building wildlife corridors and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, she's like, it isn't. But and so, good mother, she takes me along to the evening, the environmental engineering department evening at Newcastle University. And basically one of the first slides is here's a stormwater drain we build around a business park. And I'm like, well, mother knows best. So in my heart going into university, I knew something like permaculture had to exist. But I'm like, oh, well, I guess that doesn't exist. I'll go and do film, which I did. Right. Uh, And so I, I found, I vaguely knew of permaculture in the background um, sort of after universities. Uh, so I knew it as like a gardening technique because someone sort of said, I think I told that story to someone, they're like, well, you might, you know, what about permaculture? And I'm like, nah, it doesn't sound right. So um, I knew it existed before it did. And and then I kind of got way more into it, probably in in uh, as an intellectually into it in New Zealand and then even uh, more deeply. And then we started gardening in rental houses, uh, but not like large scale gardening, but just beginning that process. My grandfather was a keen gardener and so on. So I had a childhood, there's a 15 year gap. And then kind of got more deeply into it and uh, in in the UK. Okay, because you're now, is it you preside over Permaculture Tasmania? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, it sounds very grand. Carry a big stick. Very grand. I'm president of Permaculture Tasmania because no one else wanted the job, uh, right. as is usually the case with um, volunteer organizations. But we're the AGM and, and, and not in a mean way like, but literally no one else had the capacity for it. And I said, well, I'm finishing up a book, but then after that, I probably do have the capacity to um, to step into it. So yeah, I'm president of Permaculture Tasmania uh, and, and that's a fun group. And it's really, I think about it in that kind of dramatic sense. It is from here, like mm. this is Mecca for permaculture. Yeah. Uh, and I, one of the events I did for um, David, a retro suburbia event I did for David last, no, 2020 doesn't exist. In 2019, um, was actually at Hobart College, which is where Bill and David first met. Right, yeah. And, and that was really exciting yeah. to kind of be part of, mm. um, to, to be in the resonance of that sort of moment was actually really fun because David opened his retro suburbia thing by saying this is, yeah. I mean, the building itself is is new and actually very nice, but the Hobart College campus is where they met. And I thought that's, yeah. that's lovely. Yeah, David grew up in Fremantle. I've had the pleasure of meeting David on occasion. Upon return to Australia, like how many years were you away? Fifteen, all up. Okay, enough. That's that's a yes. fair, a fair stint for for the age. 
Yes, amazing, given that I'm only 25. Carry on. <laughs> right. Well done, brother. Did you return to Australia with any new sense of or appreciation for the landscape itself and the history, yes. the, the place, the culture, the story, the tragedies that had occurred? Absolutely. So the I, I obviously didn't like the politics of Australia when I left. I left Howard's Australia and you couldn't even you couldn't even get sorry across the line, right? right? So I found it ghastly, ghastly. I still do at a federal level for the most part. Um, but I also left not liking the landscape. Um, growing up a weird kid and, and in that kind of classic tyranny of distance sense, particularly if you're interested in stuff like magic, it's like, why are there no snow on the hills? Yeah. Where are the wolves and like castle ruins and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I'm like, this is ghastly. And so my, on my mother's side of the family, we've got family up the Hunter Valley and, and hinterlands. So we'd spend a lot of time driving up what I now find to be immensely beautiful country. But at the time I'm like, God, this just makes me thirsty looking at it. Right. It's terrible. So yeah. I actually came out, we were still in London before we'd moved back, and I came back for my youngest brother's um, wedding, and he married a girl who grew up in the Hunter Valley. So it was at Peterson's Champagne House in the Hunter, and obviously, like, really bougie, vineyardy stuff, right? But mm -hmm. it was the first time I realized, um, this is actually stunning, and and this is my home, and and I could I could approach it from a magical perspective of, this is a wine valley uh, attached to a river, and wine Shiraz um, is called that because of the the region that it, it comes from in kind of like Anatolia, Iraq. yeah, and and that was originally, so the grape vine was originally a as a wild thing is a ground cover. Um, so mm. it grew as a vine along the ground and these bitter red grapes. And mm. quite clearly, humans 12,000 plus years ago mm -hmm. would crush them up and leave them and, and wild yeast would ferment them. And that's where wine would come from. And I just kind of had this stacked moment of Australia. And I obviously knew by then, like, I knew this in primary school, uh, that we have this preposterous approach to history where we kind of get to sort of 1770 and then just say and before that aborigines like we just oh my god terrible, I know. Right? um but it was uh there's a way of understanding history when you realize that the cosmos is alive yeah that the hunter valley is in resonance with that very first somewhere like shiraz but that very first Anatolian river valley where these vines grew and and it's this it's in resonance it is is in a living resonance with it and you understand that with psychedelics and shamanism mm. and so on mm. so it, it opened up Australian not Australian history it opened up the history of country mm. on, a, on a planetary basis by doing that and so I, I felt I actually spent the next few days processing my guilt I wrote a blog post about it many years ago right. feeling quite yeah. guilty about how I had disparaged my home and mm. and and realizing that that was and, and coming to a new understanding of so my my mother loves Australian landscape and so on from a country family and kind of almost uh, feeling guilty in a good sense in a healing sense right. of not understanding people who liked it uh, and and now I, um, I I like country anyway, right? So now now I have a different appreciation of it. As for the colonial history, so I'm better at ghosts than I was when I left um, oh. a few decades, you know, 15 years of magic later. And I live somewhere. I I think I can make the case that this is the worst imperial genocide out of anywhere in the whole empire, which was rather a big place. Oh, dude, dude. When I Tasmania to me, when I went there it was for some birthday and we stayed at this beautiful place in Launceston and we were there for like three or four days and we we're like well fuck if we're here I, I want to see Hobart so one day we did the drive to Hobart we, we went to the is it the Salabunco market Salabunco Salabunco yep yeah which were great and then drove back and the whole drive in between oh, I was just like I was like haunted this place is just dripping like it was like a it's world to world ghost it's like a scene from ghostbusters like i, I could almost yep. see slimer yeah mm. so whatever that's about is one of the reasons i'm here uh and it's it's about how and i, I presume you've read sand talk um by tyson yonkerporter one of the one of the components of it that i like um is he talks about 
products of thought versus a way of thinking and kind of white Australia is very interested in the products of Aboriginal thought, but not ways of thinking. Right. So he's, the example in the book is that you might have an economics conference on in Sydney and it, over the lunchtime break, they'll get uh, a local Aboriginal group in to do like traditional dancing or something. So right. it's a product of thought, mm. but they won't invite any Aboriginal elders to participate in the economics conference, which is a way of right. thinking. It's like, right. what's an Aboriginal right. understanding of economics? Mm. And that's the genius of his book, because that's sort of breaking open the idea of how we can learn from not just Aboriginal Australia, but Indigenous contexts around the world. Yeah. And one of them is like, what does custodianship look like when you are not First Nations? Mm. Uh, and yeah. that's, that's a real yeah. question for permaculture, because permaculture can't doesn't yet speak, and I talked to Dan Palmer about this, doesn't yet speak the language of a living cosmos. And it's one of the things that has kept it moribund for a couple of decades. Yeah. And there's works like, um, there's all this uh, post-activist, post-human, um, indigenous centering um, pattern thinking. The whole book is a book about pattern thinking, and, mm. and that should be permaculture. Mm. So um, one of the reasons I'm down here is, uh, you know, I'm, magically operant, I am spirit conversant, and I am not native Tasmanian. And so I'm, I'm implicated and in relation with various native Tasmanian groups and projects and aligned with goals and all that kind of usual stuff. But I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm part Jewish and otherwise I'm Southern English for a thousand years. Um, so what do I, I, but like, what do I do? What do I, <laughs> but that's a really good question. And, and you don't have the answer for it. If you have the answer, it is not the right thinking to bring to it, right? So one of these, one of these thought processes comes from Dr. Donna Haraway and her book, Staying with the Trouble. Mm. What do you do? Well, you, you can't solve colonialism. You can't solve yeah. genocide. You stay with the trouble mm. and you have as kind of like, um, multi-species, uh, multi-being, multi-temporal um, connections and relationships. So that's that's where where I want permaculture to go and it's where uh, magic is. And, and I see those two trains um, coming together. Oh, I don't know where to take that. I had so many threads, I could, so many- Sorry. No, 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 it was great. <laughs> no one ever um, asked me about permaculture, so I have all these takes. <laughs> One of the things I love most about permaculture, amongst many, is it's just almost like training, retraining or reflexing of, of muscles that we have innately and have always been there but have kind of atrophied for obvious reasons. Just a conscious observation of land and a tiptoeing back into or forward into a, a conscious connection and being with country and intelligences beyond the human and it really assisted me in flexing those muscles over the years like turning my eyes on so not just passively observing but like turning I even say it to my kids now when we're going walking in the bush it's like okay kids are you turning your eyes on turn them on and kind of getting this deeper and deeper sensitivity for an appreciation for the the world around me as trite as that might sound but there's something in the Australian landscape that for me over the last few years, I don't know when really started amping up for me, but maybe the last five years, country has just been singing louder oh, totally. and louder and louder and louder. It's like Australia has been kind of, I don't know if like I just didn't have ears to hear it or if it has been slumbering and just waiting or what, like, or both and or, but there is something, and I don't know how to articulate what it's saying, but there's, there's this song coming out of the country right now, and I'm fascinated by it. Like now, I am never happier now that when I when I am out bush or on country, um, yeah. and there is just this sense of like most people would be excused for or guilty of feeling like the place where they were raised is mundane. It's the known. Totally. And I always saw Australia as that for lots of different reasons, apart from the fact that it was just home, because it's so stable geologically and politically and economically it just felt so normal and so middle middle ground but something occurred to me it clicked I was driving around I think it was like down there the Manjimup area of southwestern Australia and if you haven't done a really good tour of southwestern Australia before I do recommend it um it I can't get into your fucking state Byron I've been trying for a yeah. year <laughs> I know some people I'll talk to them but Nice. <laughs> but it is incredible. 
because it is like an island. It's an island of relative green between the sea and the desert, right? It's very Tasmanian in lots of ways. But it just occurred to me, like, this place is a bloody, like, primeval wonderland in such a short amount of time, an absolute blink of the eye in terms of prodigious geological and cosmological time period. It was a different, completely different universe. And I know I'm rambling and I really don't even have a point. No, I'm into it. Other than to say there is something coming out of the land at the moment and it is so beautiful and it's a mystery. There is some kind of like secret. It's hinting at a thing. It's hinting at a thing. It's like singing towards this thing. Like, can you see it? Do you see it now? That's it. Isn't it incredible? This is it. Do you see it? And these puzzle pieces kind of falling together. Yeah, so that's actually what brought me back. So it is, in fact, about five years old, because um, I agree completely. I can I can speak with what little authority comes with being <laughs> a professional magician. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's the time has come, and you can actually see the changes. If you look, you can do a cultural analysis of this. So if you look at, say, the Songlines, Songlines exhibition um, that happened a few years ago, and the fact that, um, you know, Margot curated, Margot Neal and, and um, obviously Ananu and everyone along the Seven Sisters Songline. Yeah, I've been uh, Yeah, stunning. Mm. Um, well, I've, I've been out at um, Cave Hill and it was life-changing. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, if you look, if you listen, and I think Tyson is at the head of this, right. I think the time has come. I think what David Moral Jalai was trying to do in the 90s is happening right. now. And right. and country has woken up. Yep. The thing about Aboriginal Australia, and it's something Bill said, it, it's principal preoccupation. He said that uh, Aboriginal Australia's principal preoccupation is time. Right. So, like, if you look at it from a ceremonial perspective, their um, understanding of time and deep time and dimensionality and, and timing and so <clears> on <throat> is the best in the world. Um and there, Australia is the oldest continent on earth. So it is the elders have arrived mm. because we have fucked up. Yeah. Um, and, and they are here in, in a loving way. And the thing that I've, from a spirit perspective, I've struggled with is that we don't deserve it, Byron. Mm. We don't deserve to be saved. And we are. That, that assistance. Yeah. Um, and so country is, is awake in a way that uh, it wasn't when I left. And that's a good sign, but it also might be not a good sign well, in the sense of reaping what we are, we're heading to. Yes, exactly. There's no there's no way around that. Um, I'm I'm lineaged in a um, a Caro Andean lineage, and there's a rite called the Mosok Karpai. Uh, in 1949, a a um, earthquake happened around Cusco and this cathedral collapsed and underneath it was this temple, uh, Inca temple of the sun, everything's of the sun. But this was a temple where like priests would stay. So it was sort of like a college of, of sun priests. And this was the sign that the Mosok Karpai um, rite had to happen. And we were entering the Pachakuti. So Pacha is cosmos, so Pachamama right. and so on. It doesn't mean earth, it means like space-time stuff. Right. And Kuti is overturner. So we had reached a time and, and uh, all indigenous cosmologies, basically anything but a European cosmology, has a framework of understanding that the entire cosmos will rearrange and recompost itself at different points in time. Mm. Um, we have misunderstood that over a period of 2,500 years with, with apocalypse, because actually if you read like Old, King, uh, Old Testament and Old Testament Apocrypha correctly, when Jews were tribal, mm. um, we had a tribal understanding mm that would look, you can kind of squint down. It's not the same, but you can sort of squint down and go, okay, so this is the um, the Israelite experience of something that the Kero also understand and, and, and so on. Right. Uh, and where I think in one of those moments now, we're sort of at a confluence of prophecies, Hopi prophecies, Kero prophecies. They're all kind of here-ish. Mm. And we have this... Um, we still have a retained Christian notion that this means it's end times. And, and this happens with climate alarmism and everything else. It's, it is a Christian apocalyptic shape. Mm. And that's not good magic. No. Um, it's, it's the, put it this way, the diagnosis is correct maybe, but the prescription isn't. So yeah. it's, it's come to an awareness that this is, a, this is an unusual moment to be in a body on planet Earth. That's for sure. Like an oath. What a really recent Rune Soup episode, I forget the chap's name, Jonathan, 
it was like talking ayahuasca. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and um, I found, again, speaking of like great aha moments in podcasting history, when um, you guys were rapping about where, because I have a really, 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 really fucking hard time trying to grok and swallow and be in right relations with what went down on this particular continent. Yeah. I just can't. I just, I find it really fucking hard. Like, I'm like, what kind of, what kind of realm am I in where that can occur? Yep. And when he was, or maybe it was you, both of you were rapping about how they're not gone. The elders, the ancestors are not gone. They're just, they're inhabiting and populating a different place. Like I think you brought up where the Mayans went, like consciously. They were like, fuck this. We're going to go hang out over there for a while. That's the understanding of time that I'm talking yeah. about. Like yeah. shamans, shamans step out of time. Right. Um, it's a stupid idea that time is only experienced linearly and that the only people stupid enough to believe that were Northwest Europeans about 300 years ago. No one else anywhere or anyone, including our own ancestors, believed that crap. Mm. And it's not even true by the, the same kind of strictures of materialist science. Like we're still stuck with this 19th century machine universe when we've had things things like quantum physics and we know that the speed of light has moved in different like the speed of light was slower in the 20s than it is now Mm. all this kind of shit and we're still like nope time is just one damn thing after another fuck off it is it's uh it's at the very least a flat circle to make a (laughs) to make a meme reference but on a on a on a real basis when you're dealing with um cosmovisions that have a healthier understanding of time in a living universe all of a sudden you realize the multidimensional game we're playing. And, and, and I know what you mean about the pain of being here. When I would connect to country after coming back, the surface was like uh, a raw nerve. Like I would cry mm. before I could get down anywhere deep because it's so recent and yeah. so horrible, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't even talk about some of the stuff that happened down here. Like I've done videos, I've done a magical geography course that's very involved in... Um, the the story embedded in Tasmanian landscape and and I had to stop recording a couple of those times and just take a moment because it's so much but we are you don't it's like what do you do with it you doing is the problem you don't do you just stay with it Um, we need to be the thing to um well, we all need to be the thing to grieve. That was actually the point we had people from like the sorry movement come to university in the 90s before I left and they're like, this isn't punitive. It's not, we're not going to sue people. It's, we all need to come around. A really bad thing happened. Yeah. We need to come around and 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 funeralize yeah. it, right? Like, totally. Yeah. And 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 that's that's an indigenous way of being with grief. That's an animist way of being with grief. Do you know the uh, La De Angelis, the work of La De Angelis? I know the name. She, yeah, she's a magic practitioner. She's probably getting on close towards 80 now she lives in melbourne currently she wrote a book called Brittany, and it was about the roman conquest of britain and it's quite elegant third person like narrative and really like explicit i couldn't read it for ages i got i could only get through the first like you know four or five pages and i had to put it down as like no not ready for that yet and from that work based on that work she does this like workshoppy thing called rivers in the skin and it it walks people through that moment in in particular you know northwestern european history where there was a great and abrupt severing and hemorrhaging from connection to country and self and spirit and all those things that occurred then it gets pretty emotional she was invited i don't know exactly who but there were indigenous elders in Tasmania who invited her to hold that space in Tasmania. And she was saying amazing things about it, how these particular individuals who do have European blood in them were like mourning that side of their experience, their genetic experience, not just their indigenous Australian experience of being usurped and everything that comes with it, but the actual now, what was it, 2,000-year-old European lineage of that. I recommend you have a sniff out and um, have a look at that work if you, you're drawn to it. Oh, totally. Yeah, will do. All right, mate. I reckon I've probably held you long enough. I would say uh, anyone who's interested in, in sniffing out Gordon's work further, 
need only go to Rune Soup. Is it runesoup.com? That's the one. Yeah, it's fairly well known. Many people listening to this will already be onto it. But like I said before, it is, in my humble opinion, one of the best things on the internet right now. It's hey, fucking hey, amazing. Why, is it, why did you drop me down to one of the best? We started at the best. That, what have I done to disappoint you so much? No, I'm sorry. My bad. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> slapping, slapping my wrist. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, yeah, again, thank you so much. I really enjoyed today's chat. And thanks for everything you do. Hey, I do enough in my day-to-day life to know that the machinery behind Rune Soup, there's a fair bit of work that goes on in that. And um, thank you for it because it's, it's incredibly nourishing what you are doing. Thank you very much for saying so. And this was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank you, mate. And if you ever come to Western Australia, if they, when I talk to the Queen, I'll see if she'll let you in. If you do, you've got a place to stay if you, if you don't really feel like hanging out with relatives in Dalkeith. <laughs> That's right. All right, thanks. All right, mate. All the best. Until the end, 30 year lost week.